but that's, I think, where data typically fails a lot, just in the disbursement of it within an organization. And the bigger you are, the harder it is. But even in a small business, you know, five people, 10 people, it's the same idea. You know, who, who's actually owning the Shopify data or the Google Analytics data, who's making sure it's accurate, and who's able to explain what's going on. Welcome to the Winning E-Commerce Experience Show where it's all about creating a brand that your customers love so they keep coming back. This show is brought to you by DataQ. Your store experience begins with your homepage. DataQ improves your conversion rate up to 30% by showing each visitor a personalized homepage based on their interest. And now your host, Sharam Anver. Hey guys. Great to have you back. Our guest today is a data strategist that helps companies find the hidden gems within their data. Ruben Agarte, great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you were telling me that you, you're calling in from uh, Vancouver and things are pretty chill over there compared to the craziness that's happening everywhere else. Yeah, I think uh, I guess we started a little bit earlier uh, than I guess parts of the US and so on, uh, but uh, we're not doing too bad. You know, we have a lockdown like most people, but it's progressing in an optimistic way so far. That's good. That's good. And, you know, from, from what I've been reading, you're, you're a data guy, right? So it seems like the numbers are making you, I mean, it's obviously something worrying, but at least maybe the numbers aren't as bad in Canada as it is in some other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually wrote about this in terms of trying to think through the numbers uh, because I saw a lot of confusion among my friends and my family and even with clients. And I think I was trying to focus on saying, you know, total cases will always go up. It's not a good metric, mm-hmm. but instead here are a couple other metrics that I think are much better and governments might report on that. Um, and I think that was helpful for me and, and some of my, uh, my close friends to not completely, you know, get confused by the numbers, but look at really what's the actual trend on, underneath the trend. Yeah, like, I mean, honestly, I don't want to go into specifics on on this, like, healthcare numbers, because, you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't want anybody listening in, like, trying to think of that as advice. But um, it did make me think when I was looking at those numbers, because, you know, I'm a data guy as well, that kind of like the data literacy part of, like, things is so important, right? Like, you, you it seems like it's something which... It's, it's shocking how little, how, very, how few people can look at a number and truly make sense of it or try to apply some kind of heuristic behind it and think like, does this number make sense, right? So even a percentage, uh, you know, like especially with like clickbait media and things like that, you can really take a number and make it do whatever you want. Um, and if someone's not really thinking a little bit behind like, hey, how did that number come about? It can lead to some very dangerous um, conclusions. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've always seen context as being really important in any kind of conversation around data or numbers. And it was really critical, even in news, you know, I, I would see a news article and it'd be like, uh, oh, X amount of people did this or this happened. But then you actually, that's the headline. Mm-hmm. But then you read like the first paragraph and you find out the context of, well, capacity is much slower. So even though it's 100% capacity, it's still only... 20% capacity of what it could be. Um, there was an example here with uh, transportation. Uh, we have mm-hmm. like ferries that go to the island. So just, I remember just seeing that 
people were weren't really getting the context behind numbers or stories. And it was just the one headline, the one number. Uh, and that was what they were basing arguments on or, or deciding what to do or not to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think the area which we're both passionate about is business. And I mean, arguably data plays such a huge role in business um, that I'd say it's sort of something like a must do kind of education, right? To really understand if you're looking at a number, what's the context, um, you know, like with e-commerce, I think you get so many numbers thrown at, thrown at you, right? Like average order value, conversion rate, uh, number of impressions, uh, how do I compare, you know? So for instance, something really basic, like I, I've seen this happen a lot where people would say, look, my conversion rate this month is higher than it was last month. But that doesn't tell you much at all because this month could have totally different things that's happening than last month. So maybe it's actually worse because everybody else is doing so much better uh, this month versus last month. Have you, so, you know, like in, in, um, you know, in, in your experience, like, have you, like when you're talking to clients, is there sort of this sort of a bit of a reset that you find that you have to do where you sort of say, hang on, actually, let me just explain the context behind the numbers and it's not correct what you guys are doing or like, how do you find this? Yeah. Yeah. I used to think when I started doing this five years ago, that it was a technical problem. Right. They weren't able to collect the data. They couldn't find the right tools or maybe the people to help them. And those are there in some, uh, in some scale, but I actually really now think the, the biggest problem for companies is not that they can't collect the data they need or they don't have access to it. It's they actually just don't know how to read it mm. um, and they don't know how to process it. Um, and I work mostly with marketing teams, product teams, which means I'm working usually with non-technical folks in the way we, mm-hmm. we would describe them as non-engineers. Um, so they, they see numbers like what you mentioned and it just either seems right or, or it doesn't seem right but it's all very kind of blurry. It, it's kind of almost like a gut feeling on how to process numbers. And I find myself doing a lot of work with clients, simply trying to explain how to read numbers, what's the best way to go about it, what's the best way to choose KPIs, uh, and just a lot of training in that area. So what's the biggest mistake that you see people making in this? I know that's a very broad question, so um, I, yeah. I can... Get, be a little bit more specific, but I'll just let you take it for now. The biggest mistake, uh, I would say it's, it's, uh, it comes down to the, the proper strategy. Mm-hmm. And companies will typically do, you know, they'll choose tools. They know why they need data. You know, I, I always say that data doesn't need a pitch deck. You, know, you don't need to work very hard to get people to, to say yes to it. Yeah. But they don't, they don't follow through and they don't think about how it's actually going to be used in the day-to-day. Mm. So that means, you know, some companies might have data science teams, which is great. They, someone can own it, but if they don't, who's going to own it? Who's going to take care of it? You know, who's going to go out and explain it? Who's going to go and teach it? Uh, who's going to go and train people? All those things about how it, the data will actually get used. And mm-hmm. they're typically people problems, you know, just who's mm. going to do this, who's going to do something, in a, in a, you know, in an organization that's already busy, no one has spare time to just do all those things. But that's, I think where data typically fails a lot, just in the, 
disbursement of it within our organization. And the bigger you are, the harder it is. But even in a small business, you know, five people, 10 people, it's the same idea. You know, who, who's actually owning the Shopify data or the Google Analytics data, who's making sure it's accurate and who's able to explain what's going on. Right. And, and I guess you always have this, um, you know, when I asked you that question, I had something else in mind uh, that what I thought maybe could have been uh, the biggest mistake. Um, I find that you have this fallacy where people read data to tell them what they want to hear. Mm, yes. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know if I express that correctly, but it sounds like you got it. Like, essentially, it's like, I want to believe that this is true. So I'm going to like, and it's sort of like, at least when I have conversations, it's, it's, I think it's related to what you were saying, but essentially like, like a people problem. It's a bit like, okay, just step away from your like gut, like completely. Like, obviously I think having a hypothesis makes sense, but like if the data is saying that, um, you know, if, if you're not getting a complete enough picture with the data, then you risk just cherry picking the ones that make your point look even better. And then you just keep going down the wrong path. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I seen this. I, I remember I had a client once that had very poor retention and we were looking mostly at acquisition mm -hmm. and you know, we had the data to back up the poor retention, but they just wouldn't focus on it. And I, I was really confused why. Mm -hmm. And eventually I learned, you know, one of the reasons why they were avoiding it was because they actually didn't know how to deal with it, how to tackle the retention problem. Right. They didn't have the capacity to change the product or really spend a lot of time in it. So they were just effectively avoiding it. Um, but I've seen that a lot, especially with, with someone who maybe doesn't have data and they have a napkin math understanding of what's going on. They might think, yeah, right now we convert roughly at 5%. At some point they made the sort of the math in their head. And then you give them data and maybe the conversion rate is 2%, their initial reaction will be, this is obviously off because we've right. been at 5% for two years mm -hmm. with no data, but we've been there. Um, so yes, I can, I can see the, the data doesn't, you know, it doesn't prove, it doesn't, it doesn't prove it, disprove it just sort of supports whatever you want it to support. Yes, and I guess that's where it gets tricky. Um, but, but let's bring it down to small business um, e-commerce for a second, right? Or maybe a little bit more than a second. Um, let's say, you know, like when, when you talk to a client who, they've got very unique problems, right? So let, let's, let's start with that. So, you know, I think most of the stuff you read online happens to be examples with very well-known companies. You, you notice how you, their stories, like how Google improved their conversion rate by changing the color of a button. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, how Amazon did X, Y, and Z because of all the data they had. But one thing for sure is that these guys are just machines at collecting data and analyzing it and, and, and doing, you know, making very good business decisions based on that. But when you bring it down to a small business, you have, I think, a host of problems. One is, I, I guess you have unreliable data. You also have data that you, uh, that may not be like collected correctly, uh, things like that. And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, where would you start? Where if someone's listening in and they've got, and they've got a Shopify store, or they've got some basic Google Analytics set up, how would you walk through a client like that in terms of things that they should be thinking about right now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do quite a few work with, with startups and I think startups and small business are 
should sure. be very synonymous. Uh, startups might just be a, a fancier word. <laughs> uh, I would I would say you know I, I would start by by figuring out what's there already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think by far and large for small businesses they don't have to and they shouldn't spend a lot of time setting up fancy tools, which I think is an issue I see with very small companies. They want to be like the big guys. Right. So they create a stack that's very complex, but they only have a very small amount of data. Mm. Um, e-commerce is interesting to me because you can actually have a lot of data out of the box, as you mentioned, which is good and bad. But Shopify gives you a lot of data out of the box. Yeah. You could easily connect that with Google Analytics and get even more data. Um, so you have something there. So figuring out what's there already and, and then try to find the, uh, the, the low-hanging fruit. Uh, so in this case... We might be looking at, uh, let's say, your existing customer base, and trying to figure out uh, who are the best customers. Let's say, you know, who are the the top ten percent or the bottom ten percent, who's buying more than others, and this can be done with small amounts of data. You know, you don't need to be looking at a million customers. You could be looking at five hundred or maybe a few hundred, and try to find the attributes that make up these best customers. Maybe they happen to be female of a certain age range or even a certain country or a uh, certain location or maybe certain products. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, you know, sort of the 80-20 analysis they might hear can be done with small, small amounts of data. Based on that, so, you know, start, figure out where you are, find some of the lost hanging fruit, the top customers, bottom customers, um, or the whales, as sometimes they might get called in e-commerce. Uh, and then I would figure out the, the top issues in the site. Mm-hmm. So this might be conversion issues where people are getting hung up, uh, maybe technical issues, and, and work through those issues. Uh, not, you know, not to do a full website redesign, which but how would of... you find those issues? So, you know, I'll just, let's just walk through what you just said. I think that's really important, right? So um, firstly, you're saying look at the customers and try to segment yeah. them, right? Like find, find the really high spenders, maybe, you know, these segments. And then I guess where you're going with this is find the customers that are the most valuable to you and then try to see how I can make the next segment be more like them, right? Like what yeah. can I do in the site, right? I guess that's exactly. where you're going with it. So... So now I've got this list. So I, I know, I don't know, A, B, C, D, E are my quote unquote whales and they spend a lot of money with me. What do I do with that information? Yeah, so now that information could be used in a few different ways. Uh, it could be a source for, let's say, a Facebook marketing um, retargeting audience uh, mm-hmm. for your ads, if you're, if you're, if you're running ads. Um, it could be uh, a research source uh, where you're not gonna try to find other marketing sources that are full of those customers. Um, and of course, it could be a source for further communication. Uh, so being able to send uh, email communication uh, yeah. ongoing uh, can be sent to those customers to encourage them to keep buying. Uh, and maybe even as a fourth option, as a way to develop new products. So maybe you're thinking of coming up with new products or subscriptions. Those are probably going to be the customers you actually want to get feedback from because those are the ones you want them to buy and you want more of them. Absolutely. I mean, just coming back to your third point, I, one of the things I was thinking about when you said, look at problems in your site, I guess you could also email them and say, hey, like, was there something you didn't like about our site that you want us to improve, right? Is there any other thing that you've seen people do to it? 
the, the reason I'm going with this is that I think this um, is a topic that's near and dear to a lot of small business e-commerce owners. They, they're constantly trying to see how do I make my site better? Yeah. How do I make it convert better? So, you know, I think talking to the whales, so to speak, is a great point. Have you seen any other tactics where people get some good advice on how to um, improve things? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this can be an endless rabbit hole, right? Because you could right. be improving things forever and, and you maybe get to the point of that Google story where you're trying different shades of blue. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think for, for smaller Especially businesses... Like well done if you're getting to that point, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you're at a different, different level. But really, I think, you know, and I have a, a, a few e-commerce clients, yeah. probably the most, the most useful report that we have is really just a funnel, right? Mm-hmm. And we're able to see the drop-off from step to step from viewing the product to adding to cart and checking out and so on. And we're just working through where are the biggest drop-offs. Uh, is it at the initial stages, uh, you know, Amazing. from viewing the product to that, or is it maybe down the funnel when they're going to add the credit cards? Um, and then working through some of the best practices, uh, a secure site, a consistent experience, things like that. But we're still focused on the funnel itself. And that's what's guiding us. That's, right. I think what, the bulk of the issues are eventually again you can go and find more specific things and how you display products and how you provide social proof and things like that but the funnel is where i've seen that most of my e-commerce clients focus and again this might come from google analytics or shopify uh, but it just it just shows you how users are moving through that drop off and then what things maybe you can insert right maybe you have retargeting for people who drop off halfway through the funnel or if you ever have, or if you're heard of like card abandonment, this is yeah. roughly where they come in, right? Yeah, like I, I had another, like in a previous episode, um, like, um, you know, I, I guess mentioned respect the funnel. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I think that was a, that was a good quote because, um, and just coming back to this, like if, uh, you know, anyone listening in right now, uh, if you've got an e-commerce store, um, that's a really great way to start. Um, because it's, I guess with the funnel, it's something which you can show to anybody and they would get it. It's not some fancy report or anything like that. It's literally just telling you, um, like, do you, do you segment the funnel or do you, um, are there any like major steps that like you define? So for instance, do you, how, how do you, uh, think of the funnel? Like, is it like homepage, category page, product page, is it that detailed or is it like landing page to cart to... How do you structure it normally? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think segmenting is, is, uh, is critical. You, you had an um, example earlier about the average conversion rate and going down from month to month. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something, uh, there's a phrase out there, which I can't remember who said, they say, you know, averages lie, but, but segments don't. <laughs> um, so I think even a, a funnel as a, as a whole mm-hmm. can lie, you know, because it's just the average of the entire site. Yeah. So yes, in our case, we, we want to segment... Uh, as much as possible and really we're looking for outliers so if your average conversion rate in the funnel is two percent we want to see any segment that's doing better than that Um, Mm. so landing pages uh, marketing sources like marketing campaign sources uh, technology you know is there a difference between desktop mobile and and tablet the same Um, geographic might be relevant depending on on who you serve and where where you go maybe product type, um, and so on. It's probably about five or six major segments that we can start to look at right. and, and try to figure out 
where are where can we focus right let's say you you discover that your mobile conversion rate sucks compared to your desktop sure that can be a bit tricky you know that could be a major project to make sure your website is mobile friendly uh, if it's not already uh, so we may actually leave that behind and realize that we can make some improvements to our landing page which might be easier to do so we're also trying to gauge what's the difficulty of tackling a problem uh, and where can we make those those big changes um, especially so you know yeah. So I've seen people do this thing where, because um, what you're really getting at is some kind of scoring prioritization, right? So yes. what, you, what you're essentially saying is that, hey, like go get your funnel, segment it, look for the outliers and find, I mean, if it's 2%, which ones are 0.1% and which ones are 4%, right? Like where are the crazy ones? Um, and so I've seen people do this thing where um, they see this data and then they list all kinds of projects that they can do, like for instance, make the mobile thing friendly and then they score it based on like business value and like how difficult it is to do. Is that why you're getting at here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You might have seen frameworks like uh, ICE, uh, I think impact, confidence and uh, difficulty, uh, how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just effectively a way to prioritize. Yeah, to prioritize how difficult is this change? Are we talking about a copy change or a complete redesign? Uh, what kind of impact could we really get? You know, there's only so much you can improve certain aspects. Uh, so if you look at benchmarks uh, or sort of the best, the best benchmarks in the industry, how much, how much high could you be um, compared to where you are? And then from there, be able to prioritize. What's tricky about this, you know, this is effectively where A-B testing comes in and having a experimentation framework, I find most businesses of all sizes can, they can run A-B tests. It's, it's getting easier than ever to run A-B tests, but they really struggle with this prioritization aspect of things. Mm. Um, and they sort of do it based on what they think is my work, but it's all kind of very anecdotal driven. Um, right. And one of the things I, I, I guess is important when you're doing this prioritization is that you don't do it alone, right? Like you, you get your team together because your marketing guy, like everybody has their own biases. So if yeah. you're like, I find for instance, personally, I have this problem. So I'm the CTO of DataQ. So whenever I look at sort of like, we do very similar things. We're always trying to see how to improve the product. And I find that I'm constantly looking at technical ways to solve it because that's where I approach it. Whereas my co-founder has a different bias. So I find like when I do this prioritization exercise, it's much better for me to sit with her and do it together where then the score is like a little bit of a negotiation. It takes time, but at least, and the other thing which I find that's really useful with that is that you get a much better buy-in to do it because it doesn't matter how great your idea is that if if people don't believe that it's important, then it doesn't get done, right? Yeah, exactly. And you could, you know, as a small, a small team, you could start simple. You could just get everyone to to rank each idea on a score of one to 10 on how impactful they think they'll be and how long they'll take and so on. And then you average out the score and you find the ones that on average, the, the team seems to decide uh, as much as possible. That, that adds some democracy to the process. Mm-hmm. Now, I think at some companies or even most companies, the, the CEO will still have sort of like a final say on what yeah. actually gets to run. But at least you, you, can, you can get a sense of what the engineering team person or team feels like or what the marketing person feels like. And then from there, come up with your, you know, your next two or three ideas that you want to work on. 
Yeah, and you know, hopefully you 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 find something which you didn't consider, or like I was reading something. I don't know if this, I don't even know if this is true, but it makes sense that it's true. Apparently, Amazon's one-click checkout idea came from an engineer. It wasn't from Jeff Bezos, and oh, that's yeah. like arguably made them a ton of money. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think um, I, I I guess it down it comes down to the organization comes down to the organization on how democratic you want to be because the more democratic you are, where you ban out everything, the process does get a lot slower. So I guess you want to find that right balance. And I guess it doesn't help that everyone's sort of at home right now. So you know, as many people as you can get on a Zoom call, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So before we move on to like, I really, really want to get into A-B testing and, um, you know, things like st- statistical significance. But um, one topic which I think is sort of very, isn't really addressed very much is that you have this huge segment of businesses that literally like have no data, who have just started or um, they've been in business for a while, but something like i think uh, like shopify has i think over a million websites but i bet a fair chunk of them especially now with a 90-day free trial have just started um so then everything which we've just talked about doesn't really help right because they don't have orders they don't have would you say at in this instance where you don't have quote-unquote enough data that you shouldn't look at data at all and you should just go with your gut and then test how it goes. Like how, what would you advise someone in that situation? It really becomes about the, the, the customer, um, you know, so Paul Graham from Y Combinator had a, a great essay uh, for software companies, but really applies in this case, you know, about doing things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. And I find for, for startups or small businesses who are just going to start it, what that means when it comes to data is you probably do not have a funnel, right? If you, if, if your funnel only has 10 people and you can see that, you know, five of them drop in step five, uh, maybe that's a problem. Maybe not like the numbers are still too low, uh, to really make uh, strong decisions on it. But what you can do is look at the individual users. Uh, so in this case, you're really becoming very familiar with John Smith. And where did John Smith come from? How did John Smith hear about your, your site? What products did he, did he or she buy? Um, is, is there, you know, are they using those products? Are they happy with them? That kind of thing. And what's great is at this stage, you can actually be very familiar with, you know, your first hundred customers, maybe your first few hundred customers. Like, yeah, you can actually know who they are and have a pretty clear picture about that person yeah. and how you fit into their life um, in a, you know, in a smaller, big way. And eventually you will not be able to do this, right? You'll have thousands of customers and you cannot keep track of individuals, but now you can. And what that means is what do you it. know. Yeah. What you know about your individual customers would then just shape uh, everything else you do because you'll know that you'll be marketing to John Smith and what this person cares about. So that gives you some ideas as to what products to get, or what marketing campaigns to send, or what to say. Um, and I think that's, that's really beneficial, but it's not, it might not be as sexy, you know, as, as looking at a funnel and slicing it and doing all this <laughs> kind of analysis, but it can still be very impactful, right? To be very, very aware about who your customer is. No, I, I, I think that the reason I want to get into this topic is because I find that 
um, there's so much advice out there that I feel, I almost feel like it's a, it's more, it's less about the actual advice and more about letting people know at what stage there are, what advice applies to them. Yeah. Because I see this, I mean, I'm a member of quite a few e-commerce groups and a very common question I see is, Hey guys, I ran a Facebook ad campaign. I got, you know, a thousand views, 2000 views and nobody bought anything. Can somebody help me? Like, well, what do I have to do? And and exactly right. So like someone in, in that situation should not be thinking about a funnel at all. They should be thinking about, okay, like I just tried Facebook. Let's try another ad somewhere else and see if that worked better. And then go from there, like get your first customer and then talk to that customer. And exactly what you said, I, I think that was great. And then once you're getting enough customers and you can start scaling that, then you move on to maybe the funnel Why right? now you're looking to really optimize. And then once you've got enough data in your funnel, now you get to segment. And it seems like there's sort of this maturity curve. And I guess anybody listening in right now, you should really try to figure out where you are on this curve so that you can take the advice that best fits you. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds, it might not sound sophisticated to say just literally talk to your customer, you know, talk to your, your 10 <laughs> yeah. customers and get on the phone call and, or talk by email. But, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, there's a reality TV show, oh, Undercover Boss or something. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't seen an episode. You know, I it's saw like, like a Key and Peele version of it. Go ahead. Yeah, it's bigger companies and the CEO becomes, you know, goes down into like the front lines to talk to customers. Yeah. But it turns out to be a big issue for, for really large companies. They eventually get so large that they're really disconnected from who the customer actually is and they just have no idea what this person actually cares about. So uh, a small business that just started doesn't have that problem because they can actually yeah. keep track of all the customers. And I, I think that could probably be, you know, what you do for your first, maybe a couple hundred customers. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that probably give you the ideas that you need as to where to go find them, how to talk to them and what will make them buy. Right. I, I mean, you just reminded me of this Zappos story where um, every time they hired someone, regardless of their position, they had to go work um, at the warehouse and actually yep. sell the shoes for, I don't know, how long. And I thought that was like a... So I guess what you're saying is that uh, everyone who's starting out now a small business, you already have that luxury because there's no one between you and the customer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Very positive. Um, so even, go ahead. Sorry, I was just say with one point, even companies who have data, it might be starting maybe in the middle of their journey, mm -hmm. but maybe they never did this. Um, it's one of the things I always strive for them to do more, you know, to collect more qualitative data, because I think it's easy to fall, to so fall prey and look at just data points. Mm. And look at, you know, this data points are moving through a funnel and then you see them drop off. So you're making some decisions, but do you really know who, like who's behind those data points and, what you know who who they are roughly in demographics and, and behavioral attributes and that tends to also complete the story so it's not just this funnel it's you know it's women 25 to 34 who care about these things who are going for the funnel and i think that just that's that provides a, a much more richer understanding of the data yeah i i guess would you say that um you it's important to have this balance where you don't do too much quantitative or too much qualitative, but you try to sort of 
So I guess it's sort of like, um, we talked about this at the start of the conversation where you really need to think of some kind of process, I guess, right? So maybe it's an email where after they buy something, you automatically send them a quick survey where they get to write in some qualitative feedback. But at the same time, you're doing a quantitative analysis as well so they can spot issues. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's actually what you mentioned is, is how I would really like to do qualitative data. You can mm-hmm. do it on the one-off. You run a survey, you design the survey. That's fine. Uh, but I also think it's, it's really powerful to have those automated hooks. Um, so yeah, you know, when someone purchases, when someone returns something, maybe when someone uh, falls off, maybe they, they add to mm-hmm. cart, but then they fall off. All these kind of points throughout the journey, having an automated... Uh, email or a survey or, or for way to, a way to provide feedback. And in reality, you, you're probably not going to see this data on a regular basis, but when you need it, it will be there. Uh, so when you say, why do people buy our products? Do we know? You can go back and look at, you know, a hundred responses from the past 30 days or whatever it might be, and that you're able to access it. Uh, I think that's that's a great way to balance out the the quantitative obsession that can that can take place. Yeah, I mean, especially I mean, I've been in a situation quite a few times where if you didn't automate it and you get this data coming in, chances are that when you're having the problem and you're trying to solve it, you don't have enough data at hand to do it. So now you have to not do anything and try to collect some data to make the decision, which makes things even worse. So you might as well like take the time. Um, and especially if you're stuck at home in quarantine and yeah. things have slowed down, I guess this is something anyone should already start working on, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So, so let's move on to sort of the more complex topics. Uh, it's sort of the stuff which I'm pretty excited about. So let's say you've got, you know, we've got a company that they're, they're getting some decent sales every month. Um, and they've been reading a lot about AB testing and things like this. Um, Like I personally find that this idea of A-B testing has been abused so much that everybody thinks that it's like this golden panacea. Um, Like for instance, one of the biggest problems I see is this problem of statistical significance. Like I think people don't fully, uh, like can you just walk us through how you explain A-B testing to your clients so that, you know, like what's your uh, sort of quick 101 on it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I find most companies understand what A-B testing will be. You know, they'll have two variations of a page or a part of a page. So we don't spend too much time there. What I really want them to to do, and not all of them do it perfectly, is to just have uh, a consistent process. So I told them, you know, hey, you can have tons of ideas. There's going to be no lack of ideas from yourself, from your CEO, from your team. Don't worry. You'll have lots of ideas. Find a way to prioritize them. And, you know, give them different options. You know, here is a model where you have like multiple columns, maybe based on effort or impact, or maybe just a very simple one. Like we spoke before, like let's just rank each idea on on a scale of one to 10 and get four or five people to do it. Uh, But just have a way to prioritize them uh, based on the team effort. And then when you take, you know, the, let's say the next idea Mm -hmm. runs, run through some, basic statistical significance. Uh, maybe we don't call it that, but just say, let's run through what, you know, what we want people or how many people we want us to see this. Explain statistical significance. Statistical significance really uh, just means that a change that was seen 
let's say a, a landing page that performed better, uh, the the improvement, let's say landing page A, the original, the, the control as it gets called, converts at 10%. And then landing page B converts at 15%. That difference you know, between 10 and five is where the significance comes from. Uh, so in simple terms, the larger the change, so if landing page B converted at you know, 45%, it's a big change, you would need less people to be able to have, to be that, to be significant. Uh, but the smaller the change, the more people you need. Um, so then you, you know, uh, there's calculators online and A-B testing tools will do this for you. Uh, it just gives you a number, you know, up to 100%. And in the industry, anything about 95 tends to be good. So if you, you know, if, if, uh, if Optimizely or WVL tells you that your landing page B converted at a 95% significance is roughly telling you that the, the change that they saw and the number of people that saw it uh, is significant and it's not just random. Because, uh, you know, and a lot of times you can just um, run something and be, be random because of random, random cases, the time of day, the day of the week and so on. Uh, but it's not random. That's, that's what statistical significance is trying to help you understand that this was deliberate and it's something that would hold in theory. That's, that's at least what the math is trying to tell us. Yeah, and, and I think this is sort of this topic which coming back to the very first thing we talked about in terms of data literacy, that's, that's so important, right? Um, you know, like, like, like a very practical example I had was um, we were running tests and the thing is that in e-commerce, People don't like there's an average order value, but you have some people who buy a lot of stuff. Yeah. So if I had an experiment where like I think in this particular example, there was a guy from a hotel who who made this monstrous order. Right. So you're running an A B test and on B, this person from the hotel comes in and buys like this buys stuff which is like, you know, at least fifty X their average amount. So now suddenly, no matter what A, can, A does, B is just always amazing. But if, so, so then I got into this topic where I was like, no, but it doesn't mean B is that great because we don't have enough people going through. So I, so, so I, I like how you, you, you put that. So when, when we're coming down to this, um, how, like, what's the metric that you usually talk to customers about to say that, okay, like you are ready to do A-B tests? Like, are you looking at like page views per month or, or do you say, you know what, it's fine at any stage, but it just takes more time. How do you, how do you have the conversation with clients, the smaller ones, especially? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Of course, you know, you can run a test and if you have all the time in the world, you can run it for six months and, and get there eventually, you know, get to that significance. But most companies will not. I think most companies will, will really will not run anything longer than one month mm-hmm. at most. I think it's just mm-hmm. almost like a mental struggle for them to, to think beyond <laughs> that. So, so we're talking about a month timeline. So really what I tell them is, Hey, you know, you'll be ready when you're, let's say you have two things you want to test, you know, the control versus like variation a or whatever. Yeah. The moment you're able to get, a few hundred conversions on each one within that month is when you're ready. And then they'll say, okay, well, we're trying to test for sales. So that means that, you know, each of those things we want to test, it needs to get a few hundred conversions and then they can look at their sales numbers and then make some, you know, rough math to see if they're ready or not. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's that's the guidance. Of course, you know, like I'm sure you have, you know, I think companies run A/B tests and get 20 sales on each of their the variations, and then they'd be like, it looks like variation B is much better because there were 22 sales versus 20 sales. I'm like, this isn't it. No, <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so th- yeah, those are the rough guidance. You know, a few hundred conversions on each variation. Be able to run it for at least uh, uh, a couple of weeks to try to get some of the seasonality out of it. Of course, right. there's maybe larger seasonality in the year, but let's not get into that. Um, and then be able to to prioritize it. So, so I mean, I know for instance, Google Optimize is a pretty friendly. I mean, there's obviously much more expensive tools like Optimizely, but I think Google Optimize is free. Um, yes, and it's yep. pretty easy to set up. Are there any other tools that you've seen or maybe it's just Google Optimize that you could recommend to a small business e-commerce owner who's thinking, hey, I've, I've heard about this A-B testing stuff. How do I get started? Yeah. No, I think, I think Google Optimize is fantastic. Uh, it is free. I think you're limited to three active tests or five active tests at any given time uh, or like active slots. So it's fantastic. It easily integrates with Google Analytics, uh, which then could probably easily integrate with Shopify. Mm-hmm. So you're able to get your, you know, your e-commerce data into Google Analytics and then into Google Optimize. Uh, so that's a really popular stack, uh, I think, for any business that's testing on web. And what have you seen, um, like, impactful A-B tests, right? Because I, I, th- I think conceptually, like you said, um, it makes, it, it's pretty intuitive. I have version A, version B. I just want to see which one's better. And then, you know, if B is better, I'm going to stick with B and I'll test it with, against the new one. But... I guess there's a million areas that you can apply it to, right? So in like with the clients you work with, what are the areas that you found are typically like good places to start with? Like what, what have they done, which has been useful? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I find it helpful to start uh, in the areas where we're asking for the most commitment. Um, okay. So let's say the, the credit card area tends to be uh, a high commitment area. It's at that point where, where you're really, you know, someone can go through, add products, and be like, that looks amazing. I want that. I want this. Uh, yes, I'll do this. Add to cart. But the, when, when the credit card comes out, I think is when it, when it really starts to become real. Mm. Um, so the credit card portion, making sure that that part is correct. It's interesting, you know, because credit cards are very common, at least in, you know, US and Canada. But I still see e-commerce stores that they sort of miss all the basic cues. So, you know, you look at Amazon right. and... You have all the social proof, the security, all the logos and so on, uh, the way the credit cards get validated, all that kind of stuff. But I find a lot of, especially new e-commerce businesses seem to miss that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Using Shopify can really help you because they'll give you some of those uh, fundamentals. But if you're not with a, a Shopify, maybe you build your own platform, you want to make sure that you have your, uh, your basics there. Uh, so commitment will be one. Uh, the second one is uh, consistency. Uh, same thing. I've seen some e-commerce flows that, for example, they don't show all the pricing upfront. Mm. Uh, so they might not show the, the shipping or the taxes or some random duty fees. So everything's fine. The user's like, oh yeah, I want this. It's going to cost this much. I get that. And then boom, they're hit with, you know, uh, 20, 30% of fees in the, in the checkout portion. So being able to be consistent. But how would you A-B test that? Are you saying you A-B test consistency versus inconsistency or like what's how do how does that relate to a b testing you probably you, you a b tested by by showing some of the messaging up front 
okay. so showing, showing some of the expectation on what the shipping might be, maybe a shipping estimate or maybe a message that, that would show that. Right. Got it. And uh, I'm not sure how much you've seen this, but I've seen also e-commerce companies that completely hide the price. So they actually build more of a, of a, of a, like a, a, a funnel, but the price is actually hidden all the way at the end. So mm. you go through, you select your product, you customize it, and you don't actually get the price at the, at the very end. That's, I think, also a, an element of consistency where you're not really sure what's going to happen until you really get to the end. So they see huge drop-offs at the very end, which is maybe a little bit more rare. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Um, and, and I guess when you um, run these experiments, uh, I think it's very important to remember what you said before, right? Which is have this goal in mind. Maybe it's like hundreds of conversions. So yeah. if, that, if you're just starting out, it's going to take some time, like let it, let it go. Um, would you recommend that? Um, I, I think, you know, this is, this is sort of like this mantra that I've, I've seen a lot where people say, always test. Even when you're, when you don't have, um, like, like say you do this test, which you mentioned, like, would you recommend that they wait or would you just have this list of tests and they just keep on going all the time? So that the site is constantly every testing. Yeah, that's tough. I think you, you can end up being swung. Um, especially if you're, if you don't have as much traffic, what you'll probably realize is, is then you, you need to make bigger tests. Right. Mm. So the, the test of the color button makes no sense. So you have to test the entire landing page redesign um, to sort of make it worth it for your one test a month. Let's say if, if that's what you're limited to. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree to always be testing. I think it can be a distraction um, mm. because I think we might end up in a similar example of what you mentioned before, where that user is running Facebook traffic left and right, but getting no sales. And maybe he's, he or she is testing landing page or so on. But what they really need is just to talk to their customers. They like, like literally have no idea who the customer is. So they're really trying to go through the hardest route, like through right. the anonymized data point, let the software figure out who the customer is. Um, so I think that there's, there's an element of balance there uh, of always be running tests. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and I guess the other point to make here is that um, there is a level where you do have to trust your gut, right? Um, because if you did your homework and you know your customers, um, it could be that the data that you've collected is not enough to tell you that, like, there's no need to panic. Like, maybe the conversions aren't coming because of some other reason. So you, you can yeah. test it, but doesn't mean that, like, say you see a very low conversion rate that suddenly, like, your whole business is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's tough to say, but for some businesses with actual seasonality, you might actually not see that seasonality until you actually go through a season. So you yeah. might happen to be in a, I don't know, summer, which might be low season for you, but you don't know that because it's your first summer. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, you're running your head against the wall and you're just not making progress. Um, I, you know, for my business, uh, a low season for me in consulting is typically like August. You know, most people are, are gone for vacation with their kids. Right. It's a very slow time. And I remember the first two, three years of my business, I really like bumped my head against the wall. I'd be like, it's August. It's not going to be slow. Like, it doesn't matter what, like I'm going to call people. It doesn't matter where they are. Right. And then by the fourth and fifth year, I'm like, it's August. You know, I should, I'll take time off. Uh, Cause it's, right. it's perfect. 
Because <laughs> why, you know, why am I trying to reach people that are not in the office? Um, so I think there's an element of that that you, you won't know yeah. the seasonality until you actually go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you don't want to be trying to run the numbers on something that's just out of your control. Yeah, and I guess that's why these kind of conversations to you know people listening in can be so confusing, right? Because essentially, you're saying trust the data, but don't trust it too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 honestly, I think it's very hard to give anybody like a clear answer on this. And I really think it comes back to your point about you know what Paul Graham said: the better you know your customer, the more you know whether the data looks right or not. Like I think if you don't know your customer at all, then you are far more likely to be misled by data. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I tell clients is don't assume that, you know, gut feeling is bad. Data is good. Like there's this like black and white spectrum that we live in. Um, I think the spectrum is, is, is much more gray, right? Yeah. Uh, I think good data and having good data will actually help inform your gut feeling and what mm-hmm. feels right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe sometimes you'll be wrong and the data will correct it. They'll tell mm-hmm. you, oh, you were wrong. And it just, it, it just get better at decision-making with data. Just like we have qualitative data, you know, to sort of balance out the quantitative. Um, so there's no, uh, you know, it's not about just being 100% data-driven, no qualitative, no gut feeling, no anecdotes. It's more about having that balance mm-hmm. um, and supporting you, yeah. One of the like, so we talk quite a bit about performance and you know using data to improve uh, certain objectives. But another area that I think is very interesting, especially now with COVID, is this idea of using data for product discovery or or, or basically improving your product portfolio. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was reading through your blog, and you mentioned things like how. Uh, Netflix came up with House of Cards because they found that Kevin Spacey was really famous and political stuff was useful. And, you know, I was thinking how that, how that could be related to COVID because what we've seen, at least with this current situation, I'm not sure how long it's going to last, but it, it's really shifted demand to a few industries and these guys are having record sales. Like it's even higher than like, it's like a Cyber Monday every week if you're doing yeah. groceries or home uh, equipment. And then you've got like other industries on the other end of the scale, like travel where it's like almost zero. So I guess it's a good time for somebody in the middle to try to look at that data to see like, hey, like how much has demand for my products shifted? And could I be doing new products from the data I've collected or could I be readjusting or readjusting messaging on my existing products to fit um, what people are thinking about right now? Um, have you seen anything like that with your clients and like, how would you, like, what would you, what would you say to that to talk, talk to someone through someone who is thinking about this? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great question because it ties some of the things we have talked about. So we have, our customers, right? And we sort of know who our customers are and we want to know who they are. Mm-hmm. And we can then tie that to the more global trends that we're seeing. I had a customer who they, they work with gyms um, in uh, Dubai and Hong Kong. And of course, gyms are closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dubai is on a lockdown. So they're actually moving to online as a lot of gyms are. So they took their customers and they took the trend of there's way more people willing to take online gym classes, which wasn't very common really before, not live in, in, in the same way. And they're able to now 
create a product or a service around that. Uh, so I think it's the same thing. You know, you have awesome. your, your, yeah, you have your customers and you might be saying, uh, based on those customers, how are they, how are they changing? Let's mm-hmm. say, um, we could probably assume some things, you know, we could assume they're going to be spending more time on social media or they're going to be spending more time at home at least now, or they have more disposable income because their expenses went down on, right. you know, eating out and all the stuff. And they're just, they just want to get entertainment while they're stuck at home. So be able to tie your customers to the global trends. I think is where some of the interesting opportunities can come for new product creation uh, for now and the next six or 12 months as we see some of the strands become more standard. Yeah. And I think the bigger companies have been doing this all the time, even pre COVID. So it's not like this is something which you need to be thinking about only because of the current situation. It, I guess it's become more urgent, but um, it's not like um, picking up these skills is going to be thrown, thrown away right after, you know, we're entering another normal. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you can, it's, it becomes really interesting when you, when you really think about it, right? You think how many more people are going to be delivering stuff, whether for Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes or Amazon or Walmart. So if you have any products that could fit that demographic, you know, delivery drivers, that's probably pretty good. You're about to see a, a bump in that. Or maybe people work in warehouses or any, anything to do with online, online content, video, audio, uh, social media, of course, will continue to grow. So it's all these trends um, that, that might, might seem small, but depending on your industry, it could be pretty big. Online gyms, all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, um, I guess it's time to get that creative juices flowing. And uh, um, I mean, honestly, like it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy right now, what's, what's going on from the health perspective. Um, but one of the things I'm seeing is people really coming together and being being really creative and really yeah. trying to um, fight this sort of darkness, if you will, with um, really good ideas. And um, that, that's one of the, at least the heartwarming things which I'm seeing right now, especially in the business community with small business. Um, and I guess, uh, even if for everyone listening in, um, this has been some really solid advice from you, Ruben. Thank you so much. Um, how would you like, you know, maybe just to wrap this up, like what, what are sort of the key takeaways for you for a small business e-commerce owner listening in uh, of what they should be thinking about and doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of themes that we talked about, I think focus on the customer, you know, there's always, I think room for talking to customers uh, on the phone, email surveys. Uh, there's always something you can learn uh, even now as, as things are changing very quickly. Then we talked a lot about data. Data is great, uh, but try to find that balance in the data, not just the quantitative and the qualitative, but even how you use data and how you make gut feeling decisions. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's not a, a black and white, it's really a gray and it all supports each other. And I think when in the very last point, you know, it's trying to, to be on the offensive. Um, so it's tough times, right? And we've seen spend and drop on networks and entire industries be halted. Um, so not everyone's doing well, not everyone's booming, but there is opportunities, right? And I think it, if you're able to go the offensive and start to think forward and think what's changing, how can I adapt? What can I release? What can I create? Uh, there's going to be interesting things that small businesses can tackle um, over the next six or 12 months. 
Great advice. I especially love how positive it is, like being on the offensive rather than just yeah. sitting back and uh, wondering, hey, why is this happening? Um, that stuff people are doing about it and, you know, you could be one of them too. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, hey, like I'm sure people are going to have more questions for you. Uh, it's been really, really good advice. And this is a, I know for sure this is a topic that a lot of e-commerce owners really want to know more about. So uh, how can listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, I, I write and create a lot of resources and they can be found at practicalanalytics.com. Uh, that's where you find blog posts and templates and videos and a bunch of other stuff. That would be the best place. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Ruben, it was great having you on the show, man. Perfect. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. You're still here, which means you definitely enjoyed that conversation. This is a special COVID-19 e-commerce miniseries to help small business merchants out there get prepared. We're doing a lot more of these, so be the first to know whenever there's a new episode. Just follow DataQ, that's D-A-T-A-C-U-E, on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Stay safe out there, everybody. Till next time, this is Sharam.